Hello, everyone. Vincent Aiello here, founder and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Now, I recently finished reading a really good book I want to share with you today. It's titled Harnessing the Sky. It chronicles the life and career of aviation pioneer Frederick Trepnell, and it was written by his son, Fred Jr., and granddaughter, Dana Tibbetts, who joins us today via Zoom. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're quite welcome. Well, this book was originally recommended by our guest, Becky Shaw, way back on episode 22, when we discussed the Navy's test pilot school. Now, at that time, I'd never heard of your grandfather, despite being a naval aviator myself for almost a quarter of a century. So I was surprised to read in this very enjoyable book, actually, just how influential he was to naval aviation during some really pivotal times in history. He has a very interesting story, and you're not alone because even though there's an airfield named for him at Patuxent River, very few people know who he is. He was a man who never told his own story, but he came into flight test and development back in 1930 when they were trying to figure out how to do flight test. He also was part of the Navy's very first formal aerobatic team, known as the Three Flying Fish. Ah. And then he uh, was part of the short-lived chapter with the airship dirigibles and the little Sparrowhawk fighters that flew off onto and off of trapezes. <laughs> and then they pulled him into flight test and development in 1940, which was absolutely a critical period for the U.S. Navy. Oh, yes. They didn't have a fighter. Yes. During the war, he became the Navy's first jet pilot, and after the war, they brought him back to guide them through the transition to jets, which, as you know, right. was monumental. Yeah. Well, so, but prior to the war, test pilots, I think, based on the book, it sounds like were more based on guts than brains. But your grandfather really changed all that, didn't he? Yes. He was a headfirst, data-centric kind of guy. You know, test pilots in the 20s and the early 30s were actually more likely to be stuntmen than engineers. <laughs> He was the Navy's first real engineering test pilot, and that without having ever had a, an advanced degree. But he was very committed to getting the numbers. That was his mantra mm -hmm. to all of his guys and all of his work in flight test was get the numbers, get the numbers, get the numbers. <laughs> so that was a quite a critical transition. Well, and these days, they can get the numbers with all sorts of telemetry and instrumentation and everything else. But back then, I was really amazed to read about some of the contraptions they flew with. I, he had, you probably remember it better because you wrote it, but I just read that there was what, some different wires and pulleys and he would pull back <laughs> and there was like a weight. And so he would read how much pressure it took. He would use, he would, they, you know what they used? They used fish scales, an old oh fashioned set of fish scales with a measuring tape. And then they had to write everything down with a pencil on a knee pad. Mm -hmm. It was quite a complex operation. When you think about what's entailed just in the, the aviation part of it, you had right. to actually capture numbers with these um, very crude and primitive non-instruments. So they had no instrumentation to speak of for, for some time, very limited instrumentation. Right. And then, uh, again, the book was, for me, an eye-opener because, as you just alluded, the, the state of affairs in naval aviation leading into the Second World War was really just not in good shape. And your grandfather was instrumental to the development of the Grumman Hellcat and the Vought Corsair, two legendary fighters that were pivotal in the Allied victory in the Pacific. 
The Navy was frankly in dire straits going into this war. They were not prepared. They were flying at the time. You know, Grumman Wildcat was was in the war and it did a, a very respectable job with some amazing aviators. But they needed an airplane that would win this war against mm. Zeros and, you know, other much more advanced aircraft. The Hellcat actually was was a fantastic Grumman airplane and it went into production on on a very much expedited time schedule. And they actually came down to a point where they said, if Trap gives this airplane, this prototype, uh, a full thumbs up, we'll go into full throttle production of this mm-hmm. aircraft simply on his say-so. So that was a, a very interesting story. And and then the Corsair was really a, a, a he, he always called it a desperate gamble because there were so many problems with the development of that airplane. And it came to a sort of showdown with Watt Engineers where my grandfather stayed up through one long night to try to make this airplane work. He redesigned all kinds of uh, the the position of the fuel tanks and the position of the cockpit and so forth. And that was a very difficult project, but it came into the war late in the game, but it was a game changer as Mm -hmm. was the Hellcat. Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting because the book describes how prior to his involvement, the policy was aircraft were built and sent to the Navy and then the Navy tested them and flew them and said, okay, well, here's what we can do with them. But your grandfather said, no, we need to be involved sooner because war is looming and we can't afford to sit back and let this process take forever. But not only that, like for the Corsair, difficult enough to make an airplane like that with the inverted gull wings and everything. But also, you need to have certain firepower, you need to have certain protection for the pilot, and it needs to be able to land on an aircraft carrier. Yes. So you have to look at all those aspects of the airplane. And it made it much higher risks, introduced much greater risk for the test pilots to do it this way. And they became ever more essential to the manufacturing process because Mm -hmm. you couldn't have manufacturers designing and this back and forth process, which was completely inefficient. So he really did change the way uh, the Navy approached flight test and development. And test pilots became critical to the manufacturing and development of airplanes, both in terms of design and every other part of the process. Well, and according to the book, he was the right guy in the right place at the right time because he was universally respected. He had a knack for it. He was a sailor as a child, so he understood aerodynamics, at least on the water. Mm. And I just really enjoyed that part of the book. But he wasn't just a test pilot behind the scenes. He actually commanded, what, an escort carrier during the war out in the Pacific? Yes. Well, the interesting thing about Trap was, while we would say he was a man for his time, he would say he was born a century too late. He would have preferred to have been a clipper ship captain a <laughs> hundred years earlier. And so he kind of stumbled into aviation and then found that he was so well suited for it. So when, when he was done with getting the Hellcat and Corsair into the war, he went to a command position on the, on the Breton, which was basically a ship-to-ship transfer carrier. Uh, ship. Mm-hmm. A carrier. And then he um, became chief of staff to Admiral Radford aboard the USS Yorktown. And he loved this part of his his journey. This was what he went into the Navy for, was to be a to fight in wars, and he loved the sea and the ocean. So he went back to airplanes, and um, that was after the war when they needed to get 
jets yeah. off the ground. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. So he actually tested one of the very first super secret jets out in, I guess, what you call it, Morocco. We would call it Edwards Air Force Base today. That's but, exactly right. Right. But then it was later, kind of a crude, bumpy airfield with yeah. not a lot going on. Except. Yeah. But not long after the war, of course, the Navy transitioned its fighters from propeller-driven to jet. And that wasn't just the aircraft, but really the carriers and the equipment and the tactics and so much more. And he was the man very much at the center of that transition. Jets were far more complex than anything else they'd ever had to test before. And mm-hmm. so it made testing much more complex as well. And so the, the operations had moved by then to Patuxent River, and they tested for everything. They wanted to test for stability and control in the cockpit, but they had to make sure that everything integrated with shipboard operations and jets were much more complex and much more dangerous and much more difficult to fly. Mm -hmm. So they had to test a myriad of of factors that they'd never had to consider before. Right. Well, he was the man for the job. In fact, he created quite a legacy, uh, including becoming one of the founders of the Navy's formal test pilot school that still thrives today. But your book describes him as a really understated gentleman. He didn't seek a lot of glory. Do you think that has anything to do with why he's not maybe more well-known in uh, naval aviation? There are a number of reasons for that. He was part of that generation of flyers who really didn't seek a lot of accolade, admiration. He really was not a showboater, and he never, ever talked about it, even when others, which my father would try to persuade him to tell the stories, and he didn't want to talk about it. Once he left the Navy, he moved on with his life, Mm -hmm. and he never really looked back. I think it wasn't until we were out on the ocean and saw the F-14s flying out of Miramar that I could see this look in his eye that was yearning for something he probably would have enjoyed very much. Mm. But uh, people don't know his story, but now I think there's a little bit more understanding and uh, an eagerness to know uh, what this man did and um, how he did it because it was a completely different era than than we have today. Yeah. Well, and I think he's probably responsible for the era we have today because a lot of the decisions, a lot of the policies, the test pilot school itself were all pivotal to put us where we are today. Yes. Well, uh, Vice Admiral Don Angen, who was chief of the FAA and designated director of the Smithsonian, had spoken of him many years after not only his retirement, but after his death as the godfather of modern naval aviation because of his impact on carrier operations as well as aircraft test and development. Uh, Well, I can't say enough about this book. I really did enjoy it. I think the listeners will as well. If you are into naval aviation history during World War II and the turbulent transition to jets, you really owe it to yourself to check out this great book. It's called Harnessing the Sky. It's by Dana and her father. Uh, But you may want to wait a few days because beginning today, Saturday, May 16th, we are going to hold a giveaway where three lucky winners will receive this book for free. Uh, But Dana, it's not just a regular copy, is it? We've got these copies signed by both authors, my father and myself, and we would be delighted to have you read one of them. Oh, I think the listeners will really enjoy it. So you can check the Fighter Pilot Podcast Facebook page and our other social media platforms for information on the giveaway and how to sign up for it. It is free. Two winners will be chosen from the primary giveaway. We'll run that through a website called King Sumo, and then a third winner will be selected from our exclusive Patreon show supporters. So if you'd like to join them, 
them, you can head on over to patreon.com and search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. A giveaway winners will be announced Tuesday, May 19th. If you don't win or you can't wait for a copy, you can always head over to the fighterpilotpodcast.com, go to the literature section of our shop page, and click the link there to purchase Harnessing the Sky through our Amazon link. It costs you nothing extra, but provides your favorite podcast a little affiliate revenue with each purchase. Again, I really enjoyed this book. I highly recommend adding it to your aviation library. And Dana, what else did I miss about it? Well, I would only add that he was recently inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Honor. And I think it's just a terrific story. I look forward to hearing from your readers how they feel about it. Oh, for sure. Now, you do a bit of speaking about it, too, right? Weren't you a guest at a, what, a museum some time ago? And there's yes, a video? I, I have done presentations, not in a while, but the one I would recommend that people who want the Cliff Notes version of, of this story would be the CAF SoCal link, which you can find online, okay. to Harnessing the Sky. And that was a presentation given in their very wonderful museum right here in Southern California. And that would be a way to get a sense of the story Perfect. apart from the book. Well, we can link to that as well to give folks an idea of who you are and your grandfather's story. And again, I really enjoyed the book more so than I expected. And I don't mean that to be an insult. I just thought it was going to be a lot of technical stuff. But I really did enjoy the story of his life and the other exploits. He went on to command the USS Yorktown. Is that right? He actually went on to the Coral Sea was where he, yes, and then he was made an admiral after that. Okay, that's great. Well, again, the book is called Harnessing the Sky. And Dana, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 